welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. We'll be doing the whole chapter today. Uh, if you were here last week, you heard us start a new series called Unify Us, and we are starting in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're just starting at the very beginning, and we're going to be working through it for a little bit. And if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a bit of a catch-up here. This letter is written by Paul to the church at Corinth, and he's going to start to address some things in Corinth that are not going well with them. They're either confused about, maybe they don't understand how to act, or maybe they're just flat out being disobedient to what God has called them to do. And, and Paul decides to start off this letter, and I think this is very important. In this corrective letter that Paul sends them, the first problem that he attacks is disunity in the church. Now, in this particular church, they had had many great pastors. Paul had planted the church. Apollos had come in after that. Uh, some of them were very fond of the Apostle Peter. So in this church, you started to develop these differences of preference for different leaders. Some people said, I am the party of Paul. And others said, I am the party of Apollos. And it, it was creating division and disunity in the church. When you see disunity start to happen in the church, what will happen and what was happening here is it created factions where people... People were going to people who were like-minded, but yet they were staying away from people who disagreed with them. And this was all over a set of preferences. Now, as we look at this today, I have to ask, how does this apply to Ramsey Heights? How does this apply to me and you? Because I've never heard any of you say, oh, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Brian, or I follow Larry, or I follow Scott. Like, like we, all, we all come here without that particular issue, but that doesn't mean that as a church, we don't have different of preferences that can, if we're not careful, create factions. And when we create factions in a church, it turns into a fight where it becomes me versus the people that disagree with me. Them that disagree with me versus me and my people. And we want to avoid that because at some point, honestly, it just gets silly. Last week I shared with you some, um, some instances of church fights from an article called 25 Silly Things That Church Members Fight Over. Sam Rayner did some research on this. He asked pastors, what are, the, uh, what are the worst things that your church has ever fought off over? And I want to start with some more of these today. So here we go. One church reported they had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I don't want to have that issue here. So we're just going to go ahead and take this, uh, take care of this. Liv, where'd Liv go? She walked out on me. Liv has to keep her beard under two inches. That's the rules from now on. No, no facial hair for Liv. Uh, another uh, church, um, another church said that they had a situation where a deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and decided to settle the matter in the parking lot. Like, as a pastor, I wonder, like, what do you do with that? Like, I've got two deacons, I've got Larry and Norman, and they're fighting over an anonymous letter, and they're going to the parking lot. Like, how am I going to handle that as a pastor? I thought about that, and I think here's what we would do as a church. I would let you all know what was going on, and then we would sell tickets. And then we would take the money we gained from Larry beating up Norman. Sorry, Norman, you're going to lose that one. We would take the money that we gained from that and we'd give it to missions. So if ever you know that you're going to take it outside with somebody in the church, let me know. That is a gospel opportunity for Ramsey Heights. Uh, another church said that they had an argument and a vote 
to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. I guess that preacher was going a little too long. I don't know what happened with that. Another church said they had a 45-minute and heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown? Two, three, or four drawers. It's crazy. This is my favorite one. I shared this with some of y'all after church last week. Another church reported they had a disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. What, what do we fight about? Uh, like, like we get to those things and those things are so silly. But in the moment, there were people in a church somewhere and to them that was of the utmost importance. It was so important to them that their preferences were met, whether it was facial hair on the worship leader, whether it was the kind of filing cabinet, whether it was, we called it a potluck or a pot blessing. And they seemed silly to us, but at one point somebody thought it was very, very serious. And most fights in a church are just as silly. Liv, there you are. We decided your beard can only be two inches long. Your dad will explain to you later, okay? So, uh, they seemed so serious at that time that people were willing to fight over them. And these churches delved into, or, uh, developed into different factions. So, the question is, when we get into fights, when we get into arguments, when we see things different ways, how do we handle those disagreements? How do we keep from turning into a church of factions where this half of the church wants one thing and this half of the church wants the other and this half in here just likes to fight? Half, half, third, third, and third just likes to fight. I'm not very good at math. I'm a history teacher. How, how do we do that? And as Paul continues on teaching, he's going to give us some, some information. He's going to give us some direction on how to avoid or why churches develop into factions that are fighting. If you've got your Bibles, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Paul speaking here. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul here, as he's teaching, he's going back to this original argument. Now remember, they're arguing over preference of leaders. We would argue over preferences of many other things. But, but he says, here's the problem with your preferences. And remember, some of these people, people uh, professed a preference for Paul. What Paul is getting at in this part of the passage is there is a foundational problem in the church. We've got to take a step back and ask, what is the base of this church in Corinth? And then for us, what is the base of this church here at Ramsey Heights? What does it sit on? And for that reason, what, does, what holds it together? I've got a picture coming up up here. This is the foundation of a house. When you build a house, anybody who is a uh, ar architect, a carpenter, will tell you that before you can build the house, you must get the foundation of the house correct. It must be level. It must be built on solid ground. All of the dirt work must be done perfectly. It is maybe the most important part of the house because that is the base, and everything else will be built on top of it. So it must be important. But sometimes you'll hear of a house where they did, not take, um, they did not take the time to have the foundation done correctly, and you'll get houses that look like this. Next picture. 
what you call houses like this, or what you will see with a house like this, is this house has a foundation problem. And what a foundation problem simply means is a foundation was laid down, but it was laid down maybe on a soft place, or maybe water was running through there, and over time the foundation has shifted. And when the foundation in a house shifts, what you will see is that at first you'll start to notice some uneven places in the floor. Some places will be higher, some people places will be lower. Then you'll start to notice that your doors and windows are jammed. They don't open and close like they should. They don't work as smoothly. They seem to have a catch in them. And last, you'll start to see on the exterior of the house, you'll see cracks like that bottom right picture. And the more the foundation of the house shifts, the bigger those cracks start to be. Well, a church is the same thing with a church foundation. Now, when I'm talking about it, I'm no longer talking about church as a building. I'm talking about church as people, me and you. When our foundation shifts, it begins to cause problems. First, you'll notice in a church that things are a little uneven. Maybe there's groups of people that don't like each other. Maybe some people are seen as more important than others. And then you'll start to notice that things that used to work smoothly, like programs and classes and services that we provide to people, they're not working as smoothly anymore. There seems to be kinks and catches in them. They don't flow very well. The last thing you will start to see is you will start to see cracks in the membership as we divide ourselves against each other. And all of that is because of a shifting foundation. So our first take-home truth, if you're taking notes with us, is a shift in church foundation causes cracks in the church. Now, when Paul is speaking here in verses 1 through 5, what he is addressing is the foundation of the church. And Paul is qualified to speak on the foundation of the church. You don't have to turn there now, but if you want to do some extra study tonight, in Acts chapter 18, it tells you about how Paul planted the church in Corinth. He comes there, he meets two people named Priscilla and Aquila. He works there for about a year and a half, planting the church, building the foundation of the church, and then he passes it off to another pastor, Apollos, which is one of those people, another of those people that people are claiming a preference for. Now, what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 5 here, he says, we've got to address what the foundation of this church originally was. Some of you are the party of Paul. Some of you are the party of Apollo. Some of you are the party of Peter. It doesn't matter. Let me tell you about me as a human. I am not the foundation. Paul says that when I came to you, I did not come to you with excellent speech or great wisdom. He said, I didn't even come to you with great strength. I came to you in fear and weakness and trembling. As a matter of fact, if you'll read Acts chapter 18, you actually see a point where God has to tell Paul, you don't leave. I have a plan for you here at Corinth. Paul goes on to say that I wasn't there with persuasive words. I didn't come in with human wisdom. He said, let me tell you what the foundation of the church was when I built it. It's in verse 2. Read it with me again. It says, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul here starts off with saying, what was the foundation of the church? He says, I determined. That means I decided. I sat down and put thought into what the foundation of the church was. And then he goes forward and says, the foundation of this church was Christ crucified. That's the gospel. He said, the very foundation of this church is not who pastored here. wasn't in anything that anybody did. The foundation of this church and the only thing that matters is that Jesus Christ loved us enough to come into this world in human form. And seeing our sin, he died on a cross to take it from us. And three days later, he rose again. That is the foundation of the church, not who it was. 
And he, he talks about this and he says, I want this to be the foundation and not the wisdom of men. You'll see wisdom in this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. You'll see it like 20 different times. The wisdom of men. That Greek word there is Sophia. And modern day, when we think of wisdom, we think of somebody who's kind of maybe older and they're just kind of wise. They just seem to know some things. But, but in the Greek, that word was very important. As a matter of fact, to many people at this time, that kind of wisdom was the greatest thing that you could achieve. We, we might compare it today to any human ability. We might compare that to our own intelligence. That, that word represented everything humans had put together, including science, the ability to inter interpret dreams, skills of management, all human ability, or all human ab knowledge and ability. And what Paul is telling them here is, I think I see a shift in your foundation. The foundation used to be Christ crucified, but now I see you putting a lot of emphasis and making the foundation of this church on human ability in which leaders, leaders you prefer. And this is going to cause cracks and factions within your church. See, what Paul wanted was their foundation to be on the power of God. Not, not what the church was doing, not who the great leader was, but that the leader of the church is God and that his power is what keeps the church going. The power to save, the power of the gospel, the power to, to literally change people and make them new creatures. And as we open the scripture, as we always do here at Ramsey Heights, we open the scripture, we read it, we learn it, and then we apply it to us. That's what we're doing here. So when I look at this, I have to say, okay, let's look in a mirror. How does this apply to us as a church? I have to ask, what is the foundation of our church? Not what it should be, but what is our foundation? This church was planted here in the late 70s because there were two new communities springing up, which are now very established, Riverview and Clearview on either side of the highway. This church was put here to serve the community and take the gospel to the new families that would be moving into the new houses of this community. That is the original foundation of our church. Take the gospel to the community. And we have to ask, I'm not saying this is true, but we have to ask, has our foundation shifted? Over the past 40 or 50 years, have we started to build our foundation on personality of people or pastors? Is our foundation a beautiful building? Is our foundation a certain group of people that, that have been here for a long time? Is our foundation the culture, the way that we dress and the type of music that we sing? Is the foundation of our church to you simply if, if you are being served the way that you want to be served? And if that is true of any of those things or anything else that you can think of, if that is true, we have a foundational problem that will eventually lead to cracks. And we will be if we are not already a very sick church. Division in church is a lot like cancer. And before I go any farther with that analogy, let me just say, I don't use that word lightly. I know that, that cancer has affected many families in here as it has affected my family. As a matter of fact, I use that word very heavily, which is, which is why I choose to use that as an analogy here. Cancer is a very deadly thing. If left untreated, it will grow, and if left to grow, it will eventually kill. And that's why if you go to a doctor and they find cancer, their first inclination is quick. We've got to cut it out. We've got to get it out of, out of your body. And if they can't do that, they will uh, start with chemo or radiation. And those things are not good for your body. Those things will actually attack your body along with the cancer. But most people agree 
it's worth it to get that deadly cancer out of your body. And that's how serious it is. And a church that is divided, that has disunity because their foundation is off, is a lot like cancer. The more the disunity grows, the more likely it is to eventually kill the church. So here's the process of how this happens in a church. If you still got your notes with you, a foundation shift kills. The first thing it will kill is focus. When the foundation of a church uh, shifts from the gospel to anything, whether that's your preferences, what music you like, or the way that you want to dress, what pastor we have, any of those things, when that shift happens, it takes the focus of the church from being outward, spreading the gospel to inward. It takes the focus of the church from what has God called us to do to what I want in my church. So if we make the foundation of our church the leaders, then the focus of us as individuals will begin to be, what kind of pastor do I want? I want an old pastor that's very seasoned. I want a young pastor that's energetic. I want somebody that will shout fire and brimstone. I want somebody that will make me laugh. And suddenly the focus is not on, can God work through this church? The focus is on, what do I really like in a leader? If the foundation shifts from the gospel to church culture, suddenly our focus becomes on what things, what churchy things make me comfortable. I like those old hymns. I love new worship music. I, I, think, that, I think that we should uh, have pews with books that we hold. I think that we should have chairs and we should use electronics for everything that we can. If the foundation shifts from the gospel to prestige, the focus will be on what makes us feel big. We want a big building like that other place. We, we want to look fancy like everywhere else. We want, we want the right decorations that make everybody know that this is a big, prestigious church. The truth is, is that the focus will shift to what I want. And when your focus changes, so does your mission. Secondly, a foundation shift kills mission. See, if the foundation of our church is the power of God, then our focus will be upon the gospel. And if we, our focus is on the gospel, our mission will be to spread the gospel. We are a church of mission. In fact, every church is a church of mission. It's just, are they a church of the right mission? But if the foundation shifts and then suddenly the focus shifts, then our mission will begin to shift. And instead of spreading the gospel, we'll say things that sound really good. We'll say things like, oh, our focus is we've got, to, we've got to grow our church. And I know the best way to grow a church. It's really easy. All you have to do is make a church where people want to come to. Well, how do you make people want to come to church? You make it a church that they like. I'm a person. I know what I like. And therefore, what our church should probably do is what I like. And then suddenly our mission has shifted from what does it take to take the gospel to the world? And our mission becomes what is enjoyable to me? What do I like? What do I want in my church? When the mission shifts, it changes everything about how we experience God in our church. So thirdly, third-ish, third, thirdly, three, a foundation shift kills joy and excitement. As our mission changes, our mission changes from doing what God has called us to do to honestly it changes to feeding my desires. Well, what do I want in my church? What do, what do I like in this church? And, and there's this lie that we believe that says if you feed your desires, you will be happy. But that's not the truth. And I can prove it to you. I've got another picture coming up here. 
If you've watched the news at all in the last six weeks, you will recognize this couple. This is Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I don't care if you're Team Johnny or Team Amber. I'm not, that's not where we're going this morning. Here's what I want to tell you about this couple. Look at them. They're attractive. They've got a net worth of over $150 million. They've got everything you could possibly ask for. They're famous. They're movie stars. They've got everything that the world tells us would make, make you happy. But over the last six weeks, there's been a very widely publicized trial about them. And they've just attacked each other. And they've shared details from their relationship. And these two people have everything that you could possibly feed your own desires with. And they are miserable. See, the lie that Satan likes to tell us is if you will just pursue feeding your own desires, it, it will make you happy. It, it, will, it, will make you, it will bring you joy. It will bring you excitement. But the truth behind that lie is that selfishness and feeding my own desires, or I'm sorry, feeding my own desires creates a deadly selfishness that is never satisfied. And it always promises that if you have more you, you will have more happiness. And in truth, what it does is it delivers the exact opposite. It steals joy and steals excitement as you focus on you. So if a church begins to have a foundational shift that changes the missions, that changes the mission, and they begin begin pursuing and feeding their desires, they will be miserable and that will be reflected to the world around them. Fourth, a foundation shift will uh, kill reputation. Other people can see when we're happy. Other people can see when we're miserable. And as a church, if, if we are miserable or happy in our church, based upon how my desires are being fed, that will be reflected in my attitude to the world. That will be reflected in how I talk about our church. That will be reflected in how I invite people to VBS. And people will see that. And eventually, if we are miserable within our church, if we are miserable because we are feeding our self-desires, eventually our church will get a negative reputation in the community. And I know what you're thinking, like, who cares? We're not here for people to like us. We're here to do God's work. What does reputation matter? Listen, every person in this room has somebody somewhere watching you. That came off more creepy than I meant for it to be. Like, like there are people, they're observing you. I'm sorry, that came out weird, like somebody's in your window. Like, they're observing you. And they're observing what makes you different than them. They're, they're, they're judging the need in their life for Jesus Christ based upon how they see you living that need in your life. And they're deciding the value of having God in their life based upon how you have the value of God in your life. And so if what they see from you and me when we leave here is I've got church hurt and I'm angry and I don't like that one person and we got in a fight at the last business meeting, what they start to see is, is a bad picture of what they will likely relate to God, which is God's church. And there are people who are sitting in eternity right now on both sides of eternity who made a decision for or against Jesus Christ based on how they observed their local neighborhood church. And so as you see, as we go down through this, this starts to get really deep. It's not just that we get off mission. Suddenly we start to see that the reputation in people's souls are in Jeopardy based upon our foundation being in the right place. So if our foundation shifts, it will change our focus. It will change our mission. It will steal our joy and our excitement. It will kill our reputation. And fifth, a foundation shift will kill the church. And Satan rejoices 
Because now this group of people who comes together to share the gospel with the world no longer meets, no longer has resources, no longer has power to do what God has called us to do. So my question for us is if that's the the, uh, road a lot of churches go down is how do we as a church not go down that road? How do I not go down the road of eventually killing the reputation and killing the church? What, What do we have to do? Well, what do you do with cancer? You have to cut it out of the body. And you don't wait till the third step or the fourth step. You cut it out at the source. And the source of this sickness in our church is the foundation shift. So if we want our church to remain focused on purpose and on mission, we must get our foundation or keep our foundation where it is supposed to be on sharing the gospel and glorifying God. Our next take-home truth is the foundation of any church must be the power of God. That means that the foundation of our church is not how great our VBS decorations is. The foundation of our church is, will God work through our VBS? The foundation of our church is not how great any of the things that we can do are, not our opinions, not our talents, not our desires. The foundation of our church is what can God's power do through me if I allow him to do so? I want you guys to know, I get here on Sunday morning, about 7 o'clock every morning, and I take that first 15, 20 minutes, and that's my prayer time. And during that time, I focus on asking God's power to work in our church. I pray for many of you by name. Some of you pray for a lot more than others. I'm joking. But I pray for many of you by name. Now, I'm telling you that because I want to admit this. I'm not telling you that because I'm really good at relying on the power of God. I'm telling you that because I'm really bad at relying on the power of God. And I believe to be a Christian, we must confess our sins and admit our weaknesses. And I want to do that right now. My inclination as a church and as a pastor is for me to do it. My inclination is to study through my own intelligence and figure out how to make the Bible come to life. My inclination is to teach through my own talents. My inclination is to lead through my own desires. And I just want you guys to know that I purposely structure time to remind myself that the foundation of this church is not me. It is the power of God working through us. I have to pursue that. And I'm telling you that so I hope that you know that we collectively must pursue the power of God working in our church and we must be diligent about it because it does not come naturally to us to do so. But without the power of God, we will never be effective in anything. If we want to see people saved, what we need to do is we need to get on our knees and ask God for people to be saved. We don't need to come up with tricks and trials on how to get people here. We, we don't need to, to figure out how we can take uh, the gospel to them if we're taking it out with, without the power of God. We must rely on the power of God and the power of the gospel as our foundation at this church for this church to be effective. Not what the Sunday morning attendance is. Not how much offering we got this month. Not how good our building looks. Not how well we decorate, whether it's VBS or any other week. Not 18-foot giant slides that, by the way, is a water slide. Really excited about that. Those are all great things, but it's not the base. It's not the foundation of our church or any church. Let's continue reading Paul here, verses 6 through 9. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of the world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, 
even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of any man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. So as Paul continues here, he's asking a question, okay, so if the foundation of the church must be in the power of God, in the power of the gospel, in doing God's work with the power of God behind you, how do you do that and what might keep you from doing that? Paul says if you want the power of God, you will find it in the wisdom of God. And this is a power that men do not have, or this is a wisdom that men do not have. You and I are conditioned with the exact opposite of God's wisdom. Because what God's wisdom says is you are not enough by yourself. God's wisdom says you are not God. God's wisdom says you can't do it all by yourself. But what does the world say to you? You are enough. You're wonderful just the way you are. You don't need any help. You can do anything you set your mind to. This is America. You can be anything you want to be. But the wisdom of God says something different to us. When Jesus came here and he taught, he taught the exact opposite of that. He taught you are not enough. He taught you of yourselves are lost and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. The only thing that can save you and change you is salvation. That's the gospel. And Jesus said, I will give that to you with my power, not of your power. Faith only will save you. So what Paul's saying here is the people who didn't understand that message, they killed Jesus for that message. And if you think of the people who killed Jesus, who was it? It wasn't the sinners. I'll take that back. It was. But it wasn't the people you would think of as sinners. It wasn't the government. The people behind the murder of Jesus Christ was the people who most closely looked like they were following God. The people who killed Jesus were the religious elite. And when Jesus comes in with this wisdom of God and he says, the power is not of you, they've killed him because they were comfortable being good enough. See, they had a foundation problem as well. Their foundation was works. And when Jesus enters in and says, works is not a foundation for your religion, they didn't want to hear it and they murdered him. See, as a Christian, we live by a different wisdom than even religious leaders. We live by a different wisdom than the world. We live by the wisdom of God that sheds light on our weakness. And if we are following God and seeking out his wisdom, we cannot help but be unified. Listen, you cannot fight. You cannot start factions. You cannot start a church uh, conflict. You cannot have a church split when everybody walks into this room humble and saying, I'm nothing. I don't have the answers. We should pray about this. So the next take-home truth that we have is the wisdom of God reveals our own weakness in light of God's power. So it sounds pretty good. I'm thinking, how do I get this wisdom from God? Like, I'm all about being wise. I'm all about knowing the answers. How do I get this wisdom from God? How do I, how do I keep um, from, how do I continue to pursue God's power? How do I truly see my own weakness? Paul continues a little bit more, and he'll explain. Verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God know no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, 
comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who, has, for who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct them, but we have the mind of Christ. So what Paul is going to argue here, as he argues, you have a foundation problem. And then he says, you have a foundation problem because you are not walking in the wisdom of God. Paul is going to tell us where to get the wisdom of God. He argues that there are two spirits. Two spirits in the world. There's the spirit of God given to us by God to lead and direct us. He says, but yet there is also the spirit of the world that natural men have, the unsaved have, that says that you are not weak, that you have no need of anything. And because of that, the spirit of people who walk by the spirit of the world cannot see the power of God. But Paul says to followers of Christ, the spirit is revealed in us and reveals God's wisdom to us. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. This is the Trinity. God exists as three persons, one God. We talked about that in Brother Larry's Sunday school class. I can't explain it. Did y'all figure it out after I left? They can't explain it either. But we take it on faith because that's what God tells us about himself. God exists as the Father, which I think we know when we think of God. God exists as the Son, Jesus Christ. But the third part, the third person of the triune God is the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus leaves us after his resurrection, he leaves with a promise. He said, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. Funny thing, I think today is the day that most churches celebrate this, the day of Pentecost, which is when we receive the Holy Spirit. But when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to you and literally dwells inside of you. And when the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, he has these jobs. The Bible calls him a comforter. It calls him a teacher. This is our guideposts. And so as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us as individuals and to guide us as a church, a collective church. And in his guidance, he will reveal to us wisdom and direction for ourselves and for our church. It's opposite of what the world and opposite of what our opinions would say, but that's okay because it's God's. And this is where the heart of the problem with church disunity lies. When we fight over preference, when we have a shift in foundation, when we have a change in focus, when we live as church members and we live in selfishness, the problem with each of us, the problem within any church that deals with that, is that that church is not being spirit-led. With no spirit, there will be no unity because we are not unified in the direction that God is sending us on. So our next take-home truth is this. For a church to be in unity, um, we must be spirit-led. And that's the answer to all foundation problems in church disunity. That's the answer to all problems when we have differences of opinions over preferences is we must be willing to be spirit-led. So very quickly as we finish up here, to be spirit-led, we must be individually, this is on you and on me as individuals to make these decisions. To be spirit-led, we must, number one, be saved. See, what the gospel says to us is that we are separated from God because of our sin that we have no way to access him except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible promises us that when we put our faith in him, when we choose to follow him, that the Holy Spirit will be given to us. So to make that a little bit shorter, if you're not saved, you cannot be spirit-led because you don't have the Holy Spirit with you. 
Secondly, to be spirit-led, we must be leadable. This is the hardest part. It means we must be willing to go a different direction than we wanted to go in the first place. Uh, when I first became pastor here, I went to Little Rock and I met with Pastor Jim Ward, um, a pastor who's had a very successful ministry of nearly 50 years at the same church. And I knew that we had some things that I was going to have to lead in. I wasn't real sure of. And I wanted to talk to a seasoned pastor and ask him, how do I lead in these things? And so I went down there with this idea, like, I know what I need to do. I just need you to tell me how to do it. And I said in his office, I think it was a Tuesday night at like nine o'clock at night. And he said these words to me. He said, Brian, don't try to lead in any change for at least a year. I said, wait, hang on, no, 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 because we got these things. We got some things that need to be fixed. Like I've got some technology things I want to change. And he just said like three times, Brian, don't change anything for a year. And what I did is I was hoping that he would lead me in the way that I wanted to be leaded, led. He led me in the exact opposite direction that I wanted to go. How often do we do that with the Spirit of God? Where we go to God and it's like, hey, I want you to lead me. But then he starts to lead that way and I go, no, 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 actually I wanted to go that way. You're, you're going the wrong way, God. How often do we do that? And so to be Spirit-led, we must make an individual decision to be saved. We must make an individual's decision to be leadable, to be able to uh, choose to follow him. And to be Spirit-led, number three, to be Spirit-led, we must be listening. You can't be spirit-led. You can't receive directions from somebody who you're not listening to. Now, some of you ladies have rode around with men. Men are, we're strange creatures. We're a little bit odd. And one of the things that I've always heard men made fun of is if a man gets lost and he's trying to figure out where he's supposed to turn, what does he do first? He turns the radio down. How does that help us find anything? I don't know, but I do it every time. Every time I'm lost, I turn the radio down. And I can tell you this, in my mind, I don't know how it works in anybody else's. In my mind, this is how it works. I can't focus on two things at once. So if my favorite song's on, and I'm trying to make a decision on where to go, I turn the radio off so I can think through and process where I need to turn at. And it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. The truth is that maybe some of us need to be willing to turn off some things in our life so we can listen to, hear, and focus on what the Holy Spirit is saying to us more. That may mean we have to turn off some of our friends. May, we have to, may mean we have to turn off the people who tell us that we're right all the time. It may tell us that we, we have to turn off the, the things in our life that cause us to want more for ourselves like social media. But to be spirit-led, we must be listening. And last, number four, to be spirit-led, we must be willing to act. I should have put the word obedient there. Because as we come to Christ, that's what we pledge to him. You are my God. I trust you. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe your ways are better than my ways, God. So I choose to be obedient to you, to do what you want me to do, even if you direct me to do something that is not natural. God, I will do it anyway. And this is the secret of church unity, is collectively coming to this place with open hearts that say, I want God to lead me, not in the way that I want to go, but I want to follow God's path. And here's what's amazing about God's path, Liv. For each one of us, if we all go our own paths, some will go that way, some will go that way, some will go out behind the church, some will climb on the roof. If you're weird, I don't know. Like everybody's going to go a different way. But when we all come together and say, let's pick one, one person pick the path, suddenly we all go walking off together. My challenge to us as a church today 
is that we come here every single Sunday and say we choose one path collectively. We choose the path that God lays out for us. So today, I told you last week, I'm not sure why we're doing this. I don't see any church fights on the horizon, but I know God led us here. And if he led us here, he's working on my heart and he's working on your heart. So during this response time, I want to ask you to just ask God what he's leading you to do. What ways you might have been off the path, which ways you might have went on your path instead of God's and give that to him and let us be a spirit-led church together. I told you this last week after service. I do know why we're going through this. God's fixing to do something big in this church. We're gonna see people saved here. We're gonna see people's eternity changed because of the work that we do. And Satan is getting ready to attack us. We've got to be ready. And it starts with me individually and it starts with you individually. So this morning, I just wanna ask you, don't leave here the same way that you walked in. Let's be a church of unity. Stand and worship with us.